Hello, and welcome back to App Philosophy Weekly, your favorite tech podcast where we unwrap the tech of today. We're the only tech podcast that's recognizing that Anthony Fauci's emails weren't the only emails leaked this week. We also had some by Steve Jobs as well. Some products that could have been are hidden in there. We'll talk about those in a moment. I'm your host, Bram Shank. Again, we're here to unwrap the tech of today. I'm joined by my co-host, Will Stigman, and of course, Noah Gross, writer at App Philosophy. Really good writer, I might add. Talented writer. Will, let's start with you. How are you doing? I'm doing swell, man. I I always get this impatience the week leading up to WWDC because it's really one of my favorite days of the year. And you start just getting closer and it's just... I know I already referred to the hardware coming to me last week uh, or a week and a half ago as like adult Christmas, but it is again almost. And at least I've had this nice new hardware to tide me over. But I'm really looking forward to seeing what this new hardware is really going to be able to do at WWDC. Dude, I'm getting so stoked. It's like a new beginning. What will the future of Apple software be for the next year? It's very, it feels very exciting. Noah, how are you doing? Please don't say you're doing vertical. <laughs> I'm doing great. I also like super excited, most notably because, um, of all the things that have been announced beforehand, like the Apple Watch accessibility things, the Apple Music lossless stuff. I just think that because they've already announced so much stuff outside of the conference, the actual conference is gonna be announced. We're all getting really excited. We have sleepless nights ahead at this point. By the time you're watching this, we have two days left to go until WDC, WWDC, and it's going to be a blast. I can't wait to cover it on next week's episode. I wanna get started with these emails that were the Steve Jobs emails that were leaked recently, just yesterday. And these surfaced as part of the Epic versus Apple trial, the antitrust hearing that is going on right now. Some internal emails were revealed. In 2007, Steve Jobs refers that Apple is working on, he refers to a 15-inch MacBook Air. So Apple was working on a 15-inch MacBook Air at the time. It was set for release in the first half of 2008. Now for the facts, that's what ended up happening. The MacBook Pro at the time was the only laptop to release with a 15 inch version. Maybe they didn't want to split the market, cannibalize their own sales. I would have loved to see uh, a 15 inch MacBook Air. That's totally something that I would have purchased back in the day. I wasn't into Pro apps so much. I wasn't doing Final Cut yet. I was just doing a lot of writing and homework. And I think Apple knew that a lot of people would be willing to pay a little bit more for a bigger screen. And the way of doing that was the upsell in terms of the pro, which costs quite a bit more. What do you guys think of this rumor? Would you guys have been interested in a 15 inch MacBook Air? So this came out, would have come out in during my time actually working at uh, Apple retail. So trying to put myself back and put my Apple retail hat back on, if you will. Oftentimes when folks would come in I would compare the screen of the 13 versus the 15, especially before Retina was so widespread, and show them ultimately you're not really getting more real estate. You're just simply getting more, a lot of times, white space. And I can't tell you the amount of times that I, I showed somebody the 15 next to the 13 Pro or whatever be the case and say, hey, look, here's the same website. 
you're seeing this the website essentially the same way it's just on the smaller one it's almost like you're physically cutting around it but the font the, the text isn't bigger per se and so in a lot of ways I I think that most people don't need a bigger screen like they necessarily think unless they are truly doing things that require enlargement like video mm -hmm. or they're actually trying to see more of a timeline for editing. It's, I think it's not so much who needs a bigger screen, but who wants one. And I think a lot of people would want one, especially if I'm sure it would cost a lot more than the 13 inch model, but you're still paying MacBook Air money, not Pro money which kind of is, is in the $2,500, $3,000 range already versus something that starts now at $799. Back then it was $1,000, 1200 to $1,000, or th between 1000 and 1200 Is this something that you would have considered purchasing? What if it was a thing today? Would you be interested in it? I'm going to be honest. I'm with Will here on the fact that I don't really see it fitting with the lineup. The MacBook Air, it's always been like a portable kind of thing. And personally, I use a 14-inch for school, which I think is a 13-inch mm -hmm. body with just a larger display. And that really does seem like the optimal size to me, especially now that the MacBook Air as a 13-inch is so great and still has such great battery life. It just feels like the 15 at first of all, it'd be cannibalizing their sales and obviously they wouldn't make as much money. But second mm -hmm. of all, I just feel like it doesn't fit in between that space and the people that you, you said it yourself, the people that are going to get that bigger display are the ones that want it, not the ones that need it, and therefore those are the people that will pay the premium to upgrade to the Pro. One of the other stories that emerged from these Steve Jobs emails talked about an executive team meeting, it had the whole agenda, and it was complete with scribble notes from Jobs, and it indicates that an iPod Super Nano was skewed for release in 2008. Another iPod Shuffle was also in the works. The Super Nano would have been priced at $199, $50 more than the base model. Now, I have a theory on this. I want to hear what you guys have to say. But do you guys remember that AA battery-sized model? Completely mm -hmm. voice-controlled. Some have dubbed it the matchstick model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like a stick of gum. Could that have been the iPod Super Nano, super small? Was that something that they had in the pipeline? It just wasn't ready that year? So you are think? you saying you're viewing Super Nano as being super small instead of a bigger version of the Nano? It could be taken either way. That's what I'm saying. What would you want it to See, be? Or what did you think they had? If I'm taking that 199 price point, it goes in line with what I originally interpreted a Super Nano being, which is a larger version of the Nano, which at the time back then would have been beneficial from uh, the, the standpoint of flash storage as compared mm -hmm. to spinning hard drive. So it was something that I talked about all the time with people that would come in and they would want to get an iPod for running or exercise mm -hmm. or things like that. That was a big selling point. I can see that most likely it will probably would have been too close to the iPod Touch or what would eventually become the iPod Touch to validate creating it temporarily only to like nix it after a generation or something like that. See, I, the way I see it, Super Nano is like super small, like a Marvel thing, like a quantum sized. But what would be the benefit and why would it be more expensive? It would end up being a shuffle. 
that's what I'm thinking. And and we saw the shuffle released in in 2009 with that that uh, stick of gum design, that matchstick design. Noah, what's your take on this? Do you think this is something that never came to light, or do you think it was just a name that they used to dub a product that they eventually released that was in development at the time? Now I'm thinking about it that the shuffle came out in 2009. It does make sense to an extent, and the fifty dollar uh, price jump could be the uh, flash storage. I literally have a seventh generation Nano right here. I really like the iPhone Nano. Do you know when the when it was discontinued? Mid twenty seventeen. Wow, that was discontinuation. The seventh gen came out in twenty twelve. Yeah, it took yeah, a long time to discontinue. Years, well, my dad still uses that model. That's how he listens to music in his car. My dad uses a six gen. <laughs> a lot of people still hang on to it, and they work really well. I like that the seventh gen iPod Nano has the Lightning connector because it's really convenient mm. still to uh, to charge it. I don't think I realized it is. That. It is super thin as well. Like it's tiny. I think my favorite version is probably the fourth gen. I remember we did a lot of marketing when that one came out. By the different colors. Yeah. And the fifth gen was like an iteration on the fourth gen. Mm-hmm. I think some kind of minor tweaks. But I think I like the colors of the fourth gen because the fifth was more like, I think, a little bit shinier, if I recall correctly. The fifth gen actually came in purple as well. Mm-hmm. That was a big deal. We haven't seen a purple Apple product since then until the iPhone 11 came out. I think it was really interesting how it evolved and it almost, except for the fourth to fifth gen, every single model looked a little bit different. You could argue first and second are close, but the rest of them were just a lot different and they were experimenting with all kinds of different things, so. Can we push the limits of how small an iPod can be, how thin it can be? So the Nano I think has a special place in all of our hearts for those who, who bleed six colors. The fifth had a camera, then the sixth they went all Apple Watch, and then the seventh they went back to rectangular. It's a lot of playing around. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to zero in on John Prosser, our old friend John Prosser. He had some CAD leaks this week. He leaked the entire iPhone 13 family. He, He put the link out there to the CAD files. You can go ahead and look at them yourself. Usually we see these leaks are just screenshots of the CAD or different side pictures of the phone and whatnot, but he actually made the whole cat available to everybody. And it's one of the first times that a leaker's ever done that. So it's surreal that this could be our first look at the iPhone 13. He's saying that it'll pack an 18% larger battery, batteries up to 18% larger. This is possibly to accommodate for 120 Hertz refresh rate. The form factor will be slightly thicker to account for the battery and the smaller notch because they're going to be shoving the earpiece and and all this other technology with the dot projector, all the components for face ID up into the border of the phone. Now, are you and John are friends now? What do you think? Yeah, no, best bugs. No, it's it's exciting because he'd been teasing it the day before or earlier that day. And he was like, I might get in legal trouble. Should I do it? And he was like, yeah, I'll do it. I watched the video. I was like, wow, pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Looked like he consulted some some lawyers there before he did anything. Yeah. And it's been over 24 hours now. I haven't heard or seen any repercussions. 
So maybe it won't be. We have related to this story, a report surfaced earlier this week from Korean ET News and Kwaming Chi is involved as well about Samsung manufacturing 120 hertz LTPO OLED panels for Apple. Now, LTPO is what enables this high refresh rate, right? We've seen that with the Apple Watch dating back to the Series 5 with the always-on display, the ability to downclock the refresh rate dynamically. This is something that we see on Apple's Pro displays with ProMotion on the iPad Pro line since 2017. So it's not entirely new to us, this idea of dynamic refresh rates. And the big takeaway here is faster, smoother scrolling. So it's not even a processing power thing, but the phone or the device feels faster because it can catch up with the movement of your finger faster. Now, touch refresh rates already refresh at 120 hertz on all Apple devices since the iPhone 10. Now, I want to talk about OLED displays and iPads because Calming Chi is saying that OLED displays are coming to some iPad models next year in 2022. Now, a lot of people are confused. What are the distinctions between mini LED and OLED? What are the advantages and disadvantages of both? And I'll talk about that in a second. But what came to mind when you guys saw this headline? Because Apple marketed the mini LED display on the new 12.9 inch iPad Pro like this was the superior technology, almost like we skipped OLED for these reasons because we wanted a display that was bright and had unmatched contrast ratio and all these things. What's your take on this? And I'll start with Will. I'm an AV nerd, if you will. And I was even scratching my head thinking to myself, okay, you just, maybe it's because I'm an AV nerd that I, I understand the difference between the technologies and the average consumer not, might not necessarily think, oh, this is mini LED and this is OLED. Oh no, now I'm confused. They just yeah. know it as Super XDR or whatever. I think Apple has a tendency and a history of doing this. They they say something is great one generation and then they talk about how crappy it is when the next one comes out. And I was actually thinking about this, I think it was yesterday, about how often they do that and how quickly at least for people who like cutting edge, like I would say all three of us, mm -hmm. how quickly we are to see the old product and think, oh crap, that's immediately worthless, right? Not worthless, but you know what I'm saying. And uh, it doesn't surprise me in the least bit if they were to do that going forward, even though I was a little confused by this. Also, I'm thinking personally, I think it's a really weird move because Apple presumably spent a decent amount of time and money investing in this technology. And to be honest, for the iPad, I would consider it superior to OLED. Like, I get it, OLED in general is great. You can turn off each individual pixel's backlight and it's brilliant, the black levels are great. But for something that you're taking out and about with you that's portable, with the, the amount of zones they managed to fit in on the iPad and the brightness benefits of mini LED, it makes a lot more sense to me to have that on the iPad. So I was confused, to be honest. Good point there, too, because <clears throat> when I say best, I hate it when people generalize with best, better, etc. Let me be clear and to say when I say best or superior, it's simply from a visual standpoint of video. 
not necessarily the fine balance between good quality video and good quality battery life and a great overall package experience. What I like about this is is Will is looking at this from an audio-visual perspective, whereas I tend to think in markets. And if you look at where the, the market perception is on this, people are quite divided. There's some people that say that, that uh, mini-LED is better for some reasons, that OLED is better for some reasons. People are quite divided on things like contrast ratio. OLED pixels are self-illuminating, so they should offer a greater contrast ratio. Mini LEDs should be cheaper, but not when they're manufactured at scale. So there's lots of intricacies that are involved in this, and it really falls down to personal preference. And the main thing with this, the main thing that's making the headlines is this blooming effect that people are seeing because of the dimming zones on these mini LED iPad Pros. They're not OLED, they're not self-illuminating. The pixels themselves can't turn off. So Apple dims certain parts of the display to compensate for that and to offer uh, OLED levels of contrast ratio. Is the blooming something that you've noticed, Will? Are you annoyed by that? Noticed, yes. Annoyed by, no. I have OLED TVs, so I'm familiar with both technologies. If you look at your Apple Watch that we all have, that's mm -hmm. an OLED display. And I think if, if possibly, if it were not, you might even notice some blooming like on the watch faces that are a lighter color. But at the end of the day, the places where I see the blooming, and I do see it, aren't for very long and they're never frustrating if i'm like watching video or mm -hmm. something like that i don't notice it so ultimately not an issue in my opinion noah you have an apple watch there on your wrist are you team oled are you hoping that the ipad will eventually one day transition to oled it's a weird move for me because I think the brightness levels would be a benefit on these iPads because they're being taken out and about. But to be honest, both technologies are really great. The blooming thing on the iPad, it's weird because there's lots of zones, supposedly, and, and maybe it could be tweaked in software. And for example, I've got a Samsung QLED at home, which is for the very local dimming. So a lot less zones. And like watching on that, it's never distracting. So on something as small as the iPad, either technology, honestly. Speaking of the iPad, we have another fun story here, by fun, disappointing. Apple is reportedly limiting the RAM an app can access to five gigabytes in the current iPad OS. Now we're crossing our fingers, hoping this will change in just a couple days at WWDC with the release of iPad OS 15. But the way that this came out is the Twitter account for Procreate, one of, one of the users questioned Procreate and contacted him via Twitter and said, I have the new M1 iPad Pro. Why can't I add more layers than before? What, where is the, the power of this M1 chip actually being harnessed aside from just speed? I want to add more content. I have more memory on this thing. This is the first time that Apple's ever disclosed the amount of uh, RAM in an iPad. Uh, and that's, of course, because it is a computer chip. It is a Mac chip. And... For the M1 iPad Pro configurations, you have for the 128 and 256 gigabyte options, eight gigs of RAM. And then for the one and two terabyte options, you have 16 gigabytes of RAM, it doubles. So this is some desktop class performance. I know some professional friends would disagree. They say they need at least 32 gigabytes of RAM. Developers are being limited to this five gigabytes. 
which just feels anemic at this point. You rewind back to the uh, iPad Pro in 2018, that shipped with five gigabytes of RAM baseline and then six gigs if you upgraded the ter one terabyte model. And then fast forward to the 2020 iPad Pro, and that was six gigs of RAM across the line. Is Apple res reserving a lot of this memory just for the OS, just for that fast app switching? Noah said he had some interesting points on this story a little bit before we started recording. So I want to zero in on Noah and, and see what you think. Of course, we're all hoping that uh, a WWDC iPad OS 15 will unlock more of this RAM because we're hoping that Pro apps like uh, Final Cut Pro and Logic Pro will be coming to the iPad. And obviously RAM is used to keep apps open in the background, but yeah, five gig does seem a little stupid, especially considering the 16 gigs of RAM on the higher end models. But what might be interesting is that given that the M1 is the system on a chip, simply to reduce R&D and development because they have mm -hmm. these 16 gig system on a chip, because the RAM is sold onto the motherboard, because they have those those boards, it it's actually cheaper or easier for Apple to to do that, which it instead mm -hmm. raises the question, why not make it 16 gig across the board? Maybe it's just a money-making technique. But. Here's another question for you, Noah, because I love that observation. Apple's really good about making use of their chip yields. You see a, a MacBook Air that has one less graphics core enabled on what would be eight core CPU, eight core GPU on what's considered a, your average M1. They have a seven GPU core option, which still has that eight core CPU, and it sells at the entry level MacBook Air model for $799. Why aren't they doing this with iPads? You're putting an M1 in an iPad. I could totally see next year's iPad Air having an M1 in it with that seven core option, only that seven core option available at its current price point. That's a, a definitely a good point about it trickling down. Apple loves the trickle down effect. But it's important because we, we know Tim Cook is a numbers guy and we've really seen Apple shift to arguably what's more more numbers focused, financial driven, it's all for the shareholders kind of business model. They still have their values and their DNA, the whole think different, which makes them distinct and why it does have this. Noah, I, I like that you're talking about chip yields and it's important to understand why Apple's putting M1 in everything. It's like a meme now, like put M1 in an Apple Pencil or an Apple Watch and see what you can do. And it's really Apple making use of their yields. And that actually works out for the consumer because now you have devices at different price points and Apple doesn't have to waste any of their parts. Before we move on from this topic, I had a couple of thoughts myself. First of all, this is gonna sound harsh, but I think it's dumb that we're having uh, conversation or that it was picked up and made such a big deal a week and a half before WWDC and that we almost certainly will understand the other half of the story in mere days and yet people are raising such a storm about this. It's like memory gate is the big story yeah. And secondly Brom I know you at the beginning of intro in this topic you were saying how some people would say 16 gigs or 8 gigs or whatever isn't enough for professionals. You have to remember, and not you, the general you, I have to remember RAM works differently in these machines than yes. we're used to thinking of them. And actually, uh, Max Balzer did a really good video this past week 
really breaking it down, explaining why you don't necessarily need 32, 64 gigs of RAM in at least today's applications compared to Intel chips. And that's because of the sharing of the memory yes. with the SSD. And it, it's just doing things that haven't been done before. So I have to shift our understanding of what traditional RAM really means. That's a very important point, and I'm glad you brought that up. You, you have these technologies where your memory is being shared with the SSD, and so it mitigates some of these latency issues that you, that you would have regardless of how much RAM you configured, whether it be eight gigabytes or 32. Those are very important points to, to touch on, and Apple is very good and very talented uh, when it comes to hardware and software integration. And that's why they talked about making this transition was so important to them, to Apple Silicon. They want to control what Jobs used to say is the whole widget. If we can control the whole widget, we can make the best experience we can. We know the limitations and capabilities of this chip because we made it ourselves and we can reach every inch of it. It's not like Intel is manufacturing this chip and then Apple has to worry about how many Thunderbolt drivers they're going to jam in afterward or how they're going to reduce uh, memory cachet latency. These aren't considerations anymore when you have an integrated board, an integrated chip that is by nature, this automatic risk architecture is scalable. You can keep jamming in more cores. You can keep miniaturizing the process. We continue to break Moore's law every year. These are very important points, and I'm glad that you're bringing them to the table, Will. A lot of people are expecting pro features for the iPad, like Final Cut, Xcode, and Logic Pro. Now, these run on AppKit, so a completely different thing on macOS compared to iOS. At least for this now. Isn't, yeah, at least for now. And on a Mac, these require at least 8 gigabytes of RAM. So. Where Apple's pushing pro users into a corner where they're, and I know, like you said, we're talking about this and we can be certain that it's going to be fixed in a matter of days. But this is how it's been for several years. Arguably, many people said that the 2018 iPad Pro is the first iPad that can, in fact, be your all-in-one computer replacement. Lots of people believe in that, have done it. We, we had Chris Grant on the show from the Grant and Geek show. We talked extensively about that. The only solution I can see to this is maybe a pro OS. They have like pro camera tools that you can swipe down in the camera app on an iPhone. I want to be able to flick a switch in the settings app on my iPad that allows me to access maybe uh, draggable, resizable windows, more memory from app to app. Maybe I want to sacrifice the speed at which I switch apps. That way I can dedicate more memory to just working in one app. Maybe that one app is Final Cut or Logic Pro. But a lot of people are asking, why has it been like this for so long? We've had iPads with at least five to six gigs of RAM for a long time. Why is this constraint there? And to me, again, I think in markets, and you look at the story, the first iPad Pro came out in 2015. You, you start following the, this trail, 2015 to 2016, what was happening at around this time? There was this media hysteria about Apple and planned obsolescence. The fact that software support wasn't there, the fact that it cost so much to replace your battery and that Apple was throttling the performance until you replaced the battery and not telling you upfront about it. This was this, there was media hysteria over this. 
So Apple said this was an optics thing for them. And they said, we have to support as many devices as we can. And what did we end up with? We ended up with iOS 12. They had one of the largest Rolodexes of software support for their devices in history. And when you do that, yeah, not every iPad is packing at least five gigabytes of RAM, but they can say, wow, look, we support this whole lineup all the way back to 2014. They're making these decisions at the expense of pros. I think personally, if I buy something called an iPad Pro, professional, I should be able to run pro apps and pro OS, so to speak, if that is the solution. Do you, do you, do you see a solution like that in the pipeline? I'm going to, I'm going to start with Noah first. Do you think that's the answer pro OS or can I boot into Mac OS? Well, when we at one of the, the conferences, Apple were like, are we merging iPad and Mac? And it was a resounding, a big no. And I feel like, especially with how simple and easy to use Apple tries to make its products. I mean, compare the settings menu of an iPhone to like any Android phone and all of those extra little tweaks that most users won't use that Apple just keeps hidden away from you because they want to make their products so fluid and so easy to use. It doesn't feel like something Apple would do, to be honest. I feel like they'd stick it on the app stores as perhaps say, we've done this amazing thing. We've put them on iPad for you to use. It's got the M1. And Their previous chief marketing officer, Phil Schiller, he's since become an Apple fellow. He talked extensively about this and he said, Apple is not afraid to create products uh, that cannibalize its own products, its previous designs or uh, product families in the ecosystem. You, famously, you had the iPhone, which largely cannibalized the iPod, because now you have an iPod on your phone. Who cares about an iPod? You're not going to want to buy one of those. It's still sold today. Much of the demographic for that are developers that just want a device to test things on. I love how you mentioned the chief experience that people have come to expect from an iPad is that it, it's intuitive, it's easy to use, it's fast, it's snappy. That's what com people come to expect from an iPad. They continue to add pro features, pro models of the iPad to the ecosystem, and yet those run the same OS as their entry-level iPad. And we have to ask, why is that? Are we going to reach a point where whether there's a pro OS or not for the iPad, are we just going to reach a point where the iPad cannibalizes maybe something like the MacBook Air and they don't longer sell a MacBook Air? You have to ask ourselves these questions. What do you think? I think we're ruminating a lot on this when, like I said, we're days yeah. away from really finding out. And so I, I feel like anything that we say today isn't going to age well. We're yeah. going to listen to that and we're going to be like, really? Oh, they solved it this way. I like your mm -hmm. idea of switching into a pro mode or whatever. I kind of like hardware acceleration options, yeah. being able to be turned on and off, or even the graphic option that the MacBook Pro had at one time to be turned on and off. I don't know if you remember that, but I think at this point we've beaten this horse. Yeah, we've and beaten this horse so. quite a bit, and answers are already in the pipeline just days away. But it's a fun conversation because it is. we, we want to visualize how does Apple solve this problem? Is it a point where the hardware converges and one product cannibalizes another? Or does an iPad just become more capable but never as capable as a Mac despite the hardware performance, the silicon performance being there? And, and so it's an important distinction. 
We wanted to take a quick break to tell you a little bit about our sponsor this month, Newsblur. Newsblur is an RSS aggregate platform that allows you to tweak and get your information precise, quick, and customizable. Brom, I first told you about Newsblur a couple of weeks yeah. ago. How have you been enjoying it? I'm in love with it. The best part about it is it integrates with the apps I already like to use, like Reader, ReadKit. It's really intuitive. And in fact, I use it for every show now just because it's so snappy. It's a great way to sift through information at a glance. I, I sit here and I use the arrow keys. I don't even need to mess with the trackpad and I can quickly sort through stories that we're going to talk about for the show. And, and I love that you shared it with me. That's, that's why Will's introducing this. Will was the one that showed it to me and said, hey, Brom, this is how you need to level up your workflow. If you're going to be doing you know, a show about Apple and stuff like that, you need to have your stories organized in, in a way where you can easily access information and filter out the things that you want to talk about. Some of the things that we run into is we, we talk about Apple tech, Apple technology. We don't want to talk about Apple TV+. And so one of the cool things I can do with Newsblur is I can train the feeds that way I only get the information that I want. So I block Apple TV plus news. That way I can focus on just the tech news when we do the show. Yeah, the intelligence trainer is really nice. You can, if the feed supports it, block tags. You can block mm -hmm. certain authors. You can even block specific text in a certain title. So uh, whether you want to just only see something from a particular feed or see nothing but something from a particular feed it supports all that and once you set it up on newsblur.com you can go and it will validate and respect those rules on any of the other rss readers that you might find yourself using so i've been a, a user and a fan of newsblur for probably i think four years now and i literally use it multiple times a day it's how i stay up with the latest news and it's how I get rid of the cruft. And I'm that guy that people come to ask about the news. It's really cool because it, it you can track your saved searches. So if, if I'm accumulating all the information that I need for a story and I forget where I left off, I can go back to my saved searches and find all that things, all the information I was looking for. But what's really cool is it also gives me the original site. So I don't have to mess with formatting. I actually get a Safari UI WebKit view, whether it be on my iPad or my iPhone, or my Mac, it, it, it formats really nicely. It has a first class ecosystem of apps that, that, that I really like. I bounce between the Newsblur app and the Reader app where I have Newsblur hooked up as my RSS feed. Great. Yeah, I've actually been using it since 2014. I just looked. It's only 36 bucks a year, very affordable. And it's honestly, I think the most affordable one out there that allows for filtering so it's it's it worth out. it if you care about obtaining the right information will said getting rid of all the nonsense it's like when apple unveiled reader for an ios 5 where it pushes the ads and all the nonsense out of the way so you can focus on the content it saves time and you can focus truly on your content and what's right in front of you you don't have to worry about skipping through stories or clicking around trying to navigate a website it's just the stories are right in front of you Thanks, Newsblur and Samuel Clay for sponsoring us this week. Sam? I abruptly ended it. Samuel Clay. Go ahead. Thank you to Samuel Clay and Newsblur for sponsoring this episode of Appleosophy Weekly. 
I want to move forward to the M2 chip, supposedly, according to multiple sources, one of them being Nikki Asia. He talked about M2, aka M1X. They're saying it'll be more of an M1X than an M2. And that's because there's just some iterative improvements as far as the number of cores. The GPU will be configurable, supposedly, on a, a new 14-inch or 16-inch, maybe both, MacBook Pro. They're saying the GP, or GPU will have options at 8, which already exists, 16 and 32 core options. And then the CPU at baseline won't be configurable. It'll be just boosted from 8 to 10 cores. And then there'll be memory support. Currently, it's bottlenecked at 16 gigabytes. It'll be memory support all the way up to 64 gigabytes on these models. And we talked about memory and how Apple handles that with software. So that's becoming increasingly less important, especially for the, the, the demographic that people have dubbed prosumers. A lot of people can get by with 8 to 16 gigabytes and still edit five streams of 4K video. It's like the ceiling is getting higher even for the average consumer. And look what you can do with on, on a MacBook Air. What are your thoughts on this, Noah? Have you picked up any of the new M1 machines? I haven't personally. I'd love to. The new, one, the new M1 Mac Mini is really appealing because it's super cheap and ridiculously fast. Um, but what I find really interesting about the M2, which does seem to signify that it is probably coming to the MacBook Pro, which hopefully is being announced in a couple of days, is the fact that they moved to a 10-core a CPU where previously they had, I believe it was four energy efficient cores possibly, and then four high performance cores. But now they've jumped straight to eight high performance and two energy efficient cores. Mm -hmm. So for a pro machine, when you want that higher performance, it does seem like this is something, an iMac Pro or something along those lines. Whereas in some of the MacBook Air, obviously you want better battery life, so they keep with the efficiency cores. And I think that's important to discern as well because Apple's really dedicated themselves to, to this architecture, beginning with the A10 Fusion. They call it Fusion. That's just the marketing name. Well, these, the in the industry, these are dubbed Firestorm and Ice Storm cores. That is, the, there are some high efficiency cores and then top performing cores that really fire on all four cylinders. And those are meant for desktop class processes. I like the fact that Apple's dedicated to this efficiency architecture. They said, we're obsessed with performance per watt. When they started shoving M1 in an iMac, which I have right in front of me right now, th this this still operates at above 30 watt power. And so what is all that for when there's a laptop chip in here, basically, that operates off of 12 watts, I think it is. I'm not sure of the exact figure. I think it's 12 watts. Okay, the, the M1 has amazing desktop class performance and i don't notice anything sluggish about my new imac but why does my imac need so much power i get it it's driving a display with 30 watts above 30 watts to drive a display and that chip doesn't make sense to me so again how does apple configure these devices for more high performance macbook pros we, we just saw a, a filing recently for a new macbook along the lines of a battery model. This is a regulatory filing. This is a story that just dropped this morning. Can Apple make the battery bigger? A hundred watt hour is the biggest that you can get legally and still travel with it on a plane. What do you think? I think Apple's always exploring new battery technology. And 
You even see that with like layering batteries. Yeah. That they've done. And that's the a terrorist structure like they did for the first MacBook. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I think Apple finds a way a lot of times to get around whatever uh, box that they find themselves in regulatory wise. Yeah. So, this is a, this was a Chinese regulatory filing and it refers to, it's from a supplier called Sunwater Electronic and they filed a new listing for a battery in April. So could this be for the rumored 16-inch MacBook Pro that many leakers, including John Prosser, are saying could be featured at this week's WWDC? We'll see. We've also got to remember that M1 was a first-generation product. So, yes. for example, in the Mac Mini, they literally didn't change the design. Completely the same. Tons of empty space. And that was groundbreaking. Like, it was equivalent and beating lots of high-end current generation desktop level chips and so with something like this where they can develop it more it's going to be pretty exciting definitely I, I i love all these points guys i think i feel like i'm getting hyped for wwdc now what are you about you guys i've been i've been there baby <laughs> many sleepless nights ahead of us it's it's going to be quite a ride thank you for unwrapping the tech of today with us this week we had a blast doing it with all you guys where can the people find you? Let's start with Noah. I'm on Twitter at Noah underscore grows. That's yeah. Excellent. Swing things over to Will. Yeah. You know where to find me pretty much anywhere. WSIG. And we'll put a link in the show notes. You, you guys already know where to find Will. He's a household name. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you can find me. Hey, on... I'm, I'm so ubiquitous. I'm a verb. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bromshank. That's B-R-A-H-M-S-H-A-N-K. Drop in, leave me a DM, say hi. If you have a tip, if you have juicy leaks for me, leave them in my DMs. I might feature them on the show. Thank you guys for unwrapping the tech up today with us once again. And we'll see you guys next week for an awesome WWDC recap episode. We're going to be unwrapping all that tech, all that software tech. And we're really excited for it. And maybe some hardware. We'll see. We'll, we'll be unwrapping that all on Apple Philosophy Weekly next week. Thank you guys for tuning in.